Welcome to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. Each week, we hear real-time stories from athletes and CEOs on how to maximize performance through an endurance mindset. Let's get started. Welcome to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. I am so excited for our guest today. She's an exceptional athlete who has represented Team USA in the Paralympian Tokyo in 2020. This athlete has not only overcome adversity and achieved greatness in her sport, but she has also inspired countless people around the world with her, with her determination and resilience. Please welcome Amy Dixon. Welcome, Amy. Thanks, Greg, for having me. I really appreciate it. It's great to be here. It's awesome to have you on the show. We like to focus on endurance and endurance leadership. And my favorite question to ask my guests is, Amy, tell me about how your endurance mindset has impacted your life unexpectedly. Well, um, I believe that the only, I mean, it's so cliche, the only obstacle is a bad attitude. And one of the blessings that I've learned through Paralympic sport, you know, a lot of my teammates are uh, amputees or wheelchair bound and I'm visually impaired. And I, I really look at my disability is really not an excuse to not perform at a very high level. Um, if anything, like it's, it's even more of a reason to perform at a high level. Um, it gives, you know, having a, a little bit of an adversity, especially in endurance sports, uh, is, is what toughens you up. And um, I don't know anybody tougher than some of my teammates who have, you know, lost legs and or uh, paralysis from uh, being serving our country in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so I just think about how brave they are and um, and how, how challenging their lives are outside of sport. And and I just focus on gratitude. When I when things get tough, you just realize you know, focus on the things you can you can control and um, and realize how lucky you are that we get to do this sport for for a living for some of us and for fun for others. So that's very well said. Um, and gratitude is amazing, right? And being thankful for what we do have. Dig us a little bit deeper into that realization around gratitude. Is that something that you've had in your life all your life, or is it something that you worked on? Talk to us about. Uh, bringing that as a principle in your life? Well, I mean, my family didn't have a lot of money growing up. My mom was a single parent. Um, and really, you know, she hung wallpaper for a living. She was a housekeeper. And, you know, so she was used to doing manual labor her whole life. And um, my sister and I both rode horses. We had we had a little horse farm at home. And so my sister and I were in charge of taking care of the horses. My mom helped out when she could. And so I think... Um, even though we didn't have a lot, we didn't really notice it. Um, and I think that we were so grateful for any any opportunities that we were given, whether that was free riding lessons, whether, whether that was my first job, you know, um, working at the local stable in exchange for riding lessons when I was eight years old, uh, mucking stalls and brushing horses and cleaning water buckets in exchange for riding lessons and for riding opportunities. And so... Um, all those little little micro benefits made me very grateful to to see the benefits of my hard work and also realize that there's a lot of people that really care about you that want to help. And so as I got older and involved in sports and again, when I lost my sight, I mean, I, I would say that prior to me losing my vision, I was a pretty selfish person. I worked in the corporate world. I worked in the in the wine industry as a sommelier for 20 years. And um my job was about hitting numbers and targets and sales figures and spreadsheets. And um, 
I, the world and in my world, everything revolved around me (laughs) And, and, you know, making a living and making as much money as I could. And then it wasn't until I lost my sight, I realized how much I already really had. And, um, I had a, you know, I had a family for the most part, I had my health and at least I had, um, I was lucky to live in the East Coast of the United States. You know, we can say a lot about the American healthcare system, but I was really lucky to be in the right place at the right time and have the right doctors, um, considering I have a very rare disease. Uh, There was only 50 known patients in the United States that had my disease when I was diagnosed. So again, luck of being in the right place, right time, and feeling grateful that I had the best doctors and the best team to help me manage my disease and help me live a really full life despite vision loss. And then, again, gratitude that I had something to fall back on. You know, I was able to, no matter what happened with my eyesight, I had my nose in my palate. Um, I It was as trained as a sommelier, so I'd be able to keep a roof over my head. And gratitude because when it got too difficult for me to to work as a sommelier, I had the ability to go back to my athletic background and got back in the pool and started swimming. So, yeah. That's, did you, have you noticed, and this might be cliche, so excuse me if it is, but as you lost your sight, did your palate and nose change? No, I don't think that your palate necessarily improves, but I do think that you are forced to focus on other senses other than your vision uh, when you're, when you're not having to rely on it um, 100%. So yeah, so I think you become more in tune with the other senses for sure. Certainly. So also in your corporate life, um, did you have an athletic background prior to that or during? I had, um, I, I, was, I was a swimmer from the age five. I was always on the swim team, uh, the local town team. And then I swam for my, my uh, middle school and then high school, I always was on a club team. I was uh, a mid-packer. I was a backstroker and a breaststroker. Ironically, I was not a freestyle swimmer. So freestyle, I was like, oh, why, why are we doing this awful stroke? I'm like, and ironically, I'm still probably faster backstroke than I am freestyle, which is really, I'm like, I should have just done Tokyo backstroke. That really would have pissed everybody off. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, so and growing up riding horses, I was riding the second I could walk. My, I had an older sister, so we always had horses at home. And so I was competing from the time I was four or five years old at, at horse shows and show jumping and, uh, and dressage and cross-country riding um, and kind of a, 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 you know, a triathlon of, of, of equestrian sports is uh, what's called three-day eventing, which is dressage, then cross-country, then stadium jumping. And so I was used to these multi, multidisciplinary kind of uh, competitions already, but just in, in equestrian sports. And Ironically, uh, yeah, I played soccer uh, all through middle school, high school. I played tennis. Um, I played singles and doubles. And then in soccer, ironically, I hated running. So I played goalie because mm. I could just stand there and catch balls. I viewed running as the devil. Um, I uh, literally, uh, it was punishment for showing up late to practice at, at soccer practice. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a goalie for a reason because I hate running. And uh and same thing with tennis. Like I, all I had to do was run to the net. <laughs> so I, when I, I, ironically, um, when I moved from New York to Connecticut halfway through high school, um, it was the middle of the school year. So there was no teams that you could try out for at that point. My mom, I was, you know, what's called a latchkey kid. You know, I, I would go home after school by myself because my mom was working until, you know, five or six o'clock. And so she explained to me that if I, 
you know, if I was moving to a new school, I had to do a sport because she couldn't pick me up until after five o'clock. So I needed to hang out and so and keep busy and keep out of trouble. So the only sport that I could walk onto without tryouts was cross country. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is my worst nightmare. I hate running so much. And uh, I was horrible. I mean, like I finished dead last in every race. I mean, like I barely, barely trained. Um and just uh, recently, a few years ago, I went and gave a speech in my hometown and this woman walks up to me and she goes, are you Amy Dixon, class of 94? And I said, yeah, actually, because I was your cross country coach. You were terrible. And I said, yes, I was, wasn't I? She goes, I can't believe you're a professional athlete. Like 30 years later, I said, I know, go figure. Now I run for a living. It's kind of ironic. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that story. So you take on this disease, you lose your sight. You get back in the pool. Walk us through the that pool journey to Tokyo. Yeah, I was uh, a member at the YMCA in Greenwich, Connecticut, and um, I was terrified of getting back in the water. Um, I had gained 75 pounds from all the steroids I was on to slow down the progression of my disease. And so I was mortified at the thought of having to put a bathing suit on. And I was a member of my local Lions Club, and the Lions Club is a nonprofit that helps people with vision loss. And a friend of mine, she is actually wheelchair bound. She was a polio survivor. And she says, oh, well, just come with me to the pool. I do those little old lady aquafit classes, you know, with the foam dumbbells. I was like, that sounds like my worst nightmare. And she goes, no, no, just come. Like all the ladies will enjoy having you. I had a guide dog at the time. His name was Elvis. He was a yellow lab. And I was like, my dog's going to jump in the pool and create a scene. Like it's going to be horrible. And so she she finally shows up at my apartment one day with her adaptive van honking the horn outside. She's like, get your suit. We're going to the pool. I'm like, oh, no. So I go and I, I hop in this AquaFit class with all these little old ladies with the foam dumbbell. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is my life. And um, but I was like, I, I forgot how much I loved being in the water. It, like, it really felt like home. And for somebody who is visually impaired, it's the one place that I don't need help. I don't need a cane and I don't need a dog to assist me. Um, you know, like I have enough vision that I can see the black line in the bottom of the pool. I have enough depth perception and enough years of swimming background to be able to count my strokes and know exactly, you know, I'm 17 strokes to the wall unless I'm sprinting or whatever. Um, and so I noticed that there was a, a little like a fundraiser for the YMCA coming up. It was a mile swim. And I thought, oh my gosh, I haven't swim a mile in 20 years. Like this is going to be a, this is going to be bad. And so I signed up, you know, you get sponsored per lap or whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think that's like 66 laps. It sounds so far. I'm like, I can't believe I used to do this as my warm up. And so, so I got, got in, it took me like, oh, it, it was, it was embarrassing. I think I breaststroked and backstroked the whole thing with my head above the water probably. Um, <laughs> and my lap counter was none other than Olympic gold medalist Donna De Verona um, from the 1970s. And she was a member at my YMCA. And I, I thought she looked familiar, but I couldn't figure it out. And I, I get done with my mile swim and she goes to put a medal around my neck. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is Donna. I'm mortified. It took me like 45 minutes to swim, you know, 1,600 yards. And uh, so that was the beginning. And she goes, you know what? Like, I'm happy to work with you in the pool. She goes, you clearly have a swimming background. I said, yeah. I said, it's been 20 years, though. And so she goes, well, let's let's meet up tomorrow. And that's how it started, um, was working with Donna in the pool at my local YMCA. I joined Masters. Then um, 
the rest is history as far as triathlon is concerned. I started hopping on a stationary bike and running on a treadmill. And a year later, I was doing my first race. Wow. You know, it's amazing how these special people show up in your life when you don't expect them to. Um, any other stories you got about special people in your life or, well, or yeah I mean like I got into the sport because there was a woman named Carolyn Gaynor uh she is a guide she was like pretty famous she's been written up in uh triathlete magazine several times she's the the at the time was the guide of guides she belonged to a veterans nonprofit called team red white and blue um they were their goal was to get veterans back to reintegrated into civilian life through social and physical activity with a focus on triathlon of running biking and swimming events and they had a chapter in new york city i lived about half an hour outside in the city and she saw on social media that i was posting swimming biking and running indoors and she said well I actually guide athletes for triathlon. I said, well, that sounds batshit crazy. I said, like, how does that? I said, I haven't been on a bike in 20 years. It sounds like a really, really dangerous. She goes, no, no, you you race on a, a tandem bike. She goes, I'm on the front, I pilot. And she goes, um, I just guided uh, a woman named Patricia Walsh for Ironman Lake Placid. I'd be happy to uh, to work with you. So we went to Trimania, which was a, a, an expo that was happening at Columbia University a month later and networked our way around the expo. And this gentleman said, well, I've got an old tandem bike sitting in my garage. I live in Boston. My wife and I are driving to Florida next week. I'll drop it off at your house. And it was a tank. It was like a 60 pound steel Moto Bacon men's tandem that was giant. Um, even with the seat post slammed all the way down, we barely could reach the pedals. But I was like, it's free bike, you know, it's free bike. Tandems are really expensive. I got to start somewhere. So we trained on that thing and did my first race and had so much fun. And we dropped the chain on the first climb. I mean, it was it was a it was a disaster, but it was a fun disaster. And uh I was immediately hooked. And when we crossed the finish line, she goes, you know, Amy, you're a triathlete. And I said, Well, that's not something I would imagine identifying as as a 37-year-old blind person. And uh I was like, wow, that's that's an interesting title. And and at the time, my my time was fast enough to garner recognition from USA Triathlon. Um, I had finished within 10% of the winning time um, at the Sprint National Championships for paratriathlon for my category, which was visually impaired. And I got invited to my first um, uh, talent ID camp down in Maryland, Baltimore, Maryland, and did did some testing parameters, you know, on the bike, some sprint testing, some um, swim with some pool instruction and some running on the track. And that was the beginning, the beginning of lighting a fire under my butt. And I got a, got a coach in the beginning. I had lots of volunteers that were coaching me and just helping me along the way, people loaning equipment. Um, it's a very expensive sport for somebody who's visually impaired. Um, as you get involved in on the on the national team side of things, there's no funding available until you've won at least three races. So, you know, to get to the level that you're winning consistently and none of the races take place in the United States, except for there's one in Sarasota, Florida each year. So you're traveling to Brazil, you're traveling to Europe, you're traveling to Japan, trying to earn these wins and or points to get yourself on the national team, which it took took a while to do and lots of GoFundMes and lots of, you know, people donating money. Um, but I got there within a couple of years and made the national my first national team in 2015. I'm curious, does the national team track the athlete and reach out to the athlete or are you 
I don't have the experience no, <laughs> being okay. called yeah. called by the national team um, for anything yet. But do they are they pursuing you? Or are you raising your hand saying, "Hey, look at me! I'm I'm getting better." No, they're they're, tra they're, they're tracking results. There's yeah, they're tracking results. So it's um, you have to get invited to races. Um, it's very hard to walk onto a start list. It's based on points. Mm. So if you're a nobody. Um, if they only take at each of these international races, 10 athletes per disability category. So 10 wheelchair females, 10 male wheel, wheelchairs, um, you know, 10, 10 amputee female, 10, 10, uh, male, and then 10 blind athletes, um, female and male. And so you have to be ranked in the top 10 in the world. So it's very hard to get your foot in the door because you've got to start somewhere. So you try to start at lower level races, which are world cups. Um, which are easier to get into because usually it's the top 20 athletes in the world that can get into those. And luckily, I had a good result at my first international race. I finished on the podium. So that kind of got my foot in the door. And then, uh, that, yeah, the rest was history. And then I, I started earning points towards getting on the national team. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, let's step back a little bit. Talk to us or educate us about the disease. So my disease is an immune condition. Uh, my sister has lupus. My mother has colitis. Um, my aunt has rheumatoid arthritis. I have what's known as um, juvenile rheumatic arthritis. Uh, it was started when I was 10 years old. Uh, it triggered uh, an immune response, uh, a, a rheumatic fever, and I lost my vision temporarily for about a month. And then I had no issues, and I was put on steroids, and everything was fine, and they thought it was a one-shot deal. When I was 22, I was waiting tables to, in order to pay for college at the University of Connecticut, and one day everything started strobing and flashing, kind of like when you look at the sun and you look away for a minute and see spots mm -hmm. in front of your eyes. So I started seeing that um, pretty routinely and would rub my eyes. Eventually it would go away. And I'd suffered from migraines since I was a kid. So I thought, you know, sometimes with migraines, people can get this aura or flashing lights around their eyes. And I <clears throat> thought it might have something to do with that. So I went to go see my neurologist of all people. And he held his hands out to the side like this, you know, way out to the side. And he said, well, how many fingers am I holding up? And I said, well, your arms are missing. I said, it's like a, a black curtain where your shoulders should be. I said, it's just cut off. And he was like, you know, don't kid around. And I said, no, no, I really can't see it. And um, I had had a concussion from a horse a couple months prior. So he's like, well, maybe you detached your retina when you had a um, the, the fall from the horse. And I was like, maybe. I don't, I'm like, I haven't really noticed this peripheral vision loss. And so I had saved, I had no health insurance at the time because I was, I was a starving college student waiting tables at night. And so I thanked him very much. I was ready to walk out the office with my samples of my medic, my migraine medication. He goes, no, no, we're walking downstairs to an ophthalmologist. He goes, if your retina's attached, you need surgery today. And I said, no, I'm like, I don't have any money for surgery. That like my vision's totally fine. See, I can see 2020 straight ahead. I can pass an eye exam. He's like, mm, we need to go. So he marched me down to the to the ophthalmologist and they took one look in the back of my eyes. And the first thing they asked me was an odd question. They said, have you been sick recently? And I thought, well, that's a really strange question to ask. I said, we're talking about my eyesight. And um, and they sort of mumbled to each other and they said, well, you have this rare disease called multifocal choroiditis with panuveitis. And that means uh, that you're, when you had your sinus infection six weeks ago, it triggered an immune response. And rather than your body attacking the virus or the, the bacteria, it sends antibodies against your retina and attacks the, the, and causes permanent scar tissue to form all around the periphery of the retina. So it basically looks like a black lung 
around the, the edges of my eye. So if you look at a, a photo of the back of my eye, it's just all black dead tissue where it should be healthy and pink and lots of blood vessels. And so as the disease progresses, that scar tissue gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it starts to encroach on the center of the vision and eventually er erases your vision entirely. And the only way to slow it down is chemotherapy to, su to suppress the immune system uh, and or steroids, which are immunosuppressive and also anti-inflammatory. Um, so they put me on high doses of steroids, which worked. Um, they put it into remission, and they just said, don't get sick. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I was like, okay, no problem. And I continued to drive, although I stopped driving at night. I started like, stop driving in the rain um, and just had to be careful. And uh, um, a few years later, I got bronchitis, lost a little bit more vision. And then when I was 32, I had walking pneumonia and that eradicated most of the rest of my vision. So now it's like looking through a pinhole in my right eye. Um, I've been really lucky that the technology is catching up with the disease, which was always the goal was to slow this disease down um, uh, before I lost all of my vision. So I can see through a pinhole pretty well. It's 20-20 it's through that pinhole. But what I have is called photopsia, where everything strobes and flashes all the time. Like I mentioned earlier, when you look at the sun and you see spots. So I see that all the time. It's very exhausting and distracting and causes headaches. But when I run or I raise my heart rate, the, anything above a heart rate of 163, that flashing becomes so bright and so frequent that it wipes out all of my remaining vision. So I always say that my guide, Kirsten, who I've been racing with for the past six years, has job security. So because when I'm running, when I'm running like easy zone two, if I'm running like a nine, 10 minute mile, that's fine. You know, uh, if I'm just jogging or whatever, like my heart rate's low enough that, you know, it's in the 120s, 130s, no, no issue. Like that photopsia doesn't really uh, bother me as much, but at that heart rate of 163 or higher, then I'm, then I'm, I have no vision at all. So I'm entirely dependent upon my guides. So I've had 39 surgeries to slow down the disease. Um, I've had steroid implants in both of my eyes that now, uh, as a time release drug, I used to have to take oral steroids to control it. So it's nice because I can't really compete on oral steroids, or you can with a TUE, but it's not exactly ideal. And uh, plus, they cause a ton of weight gain. And so, yeah, so I've got steroid implants. I, I also have glaucoma, um, which is secondary to my primary diagnosis uh, of uveitis and just been dealing with that for, for the past several years. But I'm really, really lucky. Um, I'm the first patient over the age of 40 to have any usable vision with this disease. And that's a testament to a great team of doctors. When I, when I say I'm really lucky, I, I really was in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, I only have about 2% of remaining vision left um, out of my right eye. I can see shapes and colors out of my left eye, but not it's not very usable. Um, so I'm kind of in the bonus round at this point. So every day that I have with sight is a gift. I don't take it for granted. Um, and if I lose it now, like I, that's I'm actually okay with it because I mean, like I've had way more years than they ever expected me to have. And I got to go to, and I got to go to Tokyo for the Paralympics and got to see got to see and experience that visually, which was pretty cool. Amy, that's super inspiring. Um, thank you for sharing that. I'm curious, what are you doing now? Are you still competing? I know you're involved in some organizations. You're doing some public speaking. Like, talk to us about what what's your day to day life like. Well, um, right now, uh, so after, right before Tokyo, I got quite sick again. My disease came out of remission, but this time uh, on the rheumatic arthritis side. 
and it attacked my shoulder. I was swimming, like as, as all of us during the pandemic, during lockdown, we're struggling to find pools and, you know, jockeying for lanes and, uh, you know, trying to sign, sign up at the right time for your YMCA swim slot at 5 a.m. hitting refresh. Um, I wasn't swimming as much, but for some reason, my shoulder out of nowhere just swelled up and it wasn't, I didn't have an injury, couldn't figure out why. Finally, get an MRI because it's getting worse over the course of three weeks. And they said, well, there's no injury to the joint, but when was the last time you saw your rheumatologist? And I was like, oh, this is not a good sign. And they're like, yeah, there's a ton of fluid in the joint. And we don't know why. And so had the fluid examined. It's inflammatory fluid, which means that my disease finally has like progressed to this point where it's now attacking not only my eyes, but it's attacking my body. And so uh, I started chemotherapy and... Um, uh, and a drug called Enbrel, a, a biologic medication. And then um, I ended up having to have surgery on the shoulder because it swelled up so bad that it started to dislocate every night while I was sleeping. And then it started tearing, tearing the muscle and tearing bone fragments off of my collarbone. So I had to have reconstructive surgery on the shoulder, was back in the pool within three weeks after the surgery, just trying to get it moving again. And then I threw a blood clot and ended up with a pulmonary embolism. So I ended up in the ICU, and in the course of three weeks, I gained 45 pounds of fluid on my body, and they couldn't figure out why. And so this that happened, you know, in December of 2020. And as you know, the pandemic delayed the Olympics and Paralympics for a year. Uh, so I had basically six months to get my shit together and qualify for Tokyo. Um, luckily I was ranked, uh, number seven in the, or I think at that point, I think I was ranked number six in the world. And so I could only drop down in the rankings. You know, if I couldn't race immediately, I, I needed to make sure I was protecting my ranking. So showing up at least doing like one or two races, even if I finished fourth or fifth, just to keep my points up, um, and keep my foot in the game and play defense because that's all I could do. I, I wasn't in, in any condition to go win a race or at that point because A, I was 45 pounds uh, larger. And so running was extremely difficult. Um, I was running on one of those lever running devices, the anti-gravity device that attaches to your treadmill to take some of the weight off because I kept ending up with knee injuries, calf injuries, ankle injuries, hip stuff because my body wasn't used to carrying that kind of weight on my frame. And I, by the hair, hair of my chinny chin chin, I managed to show up at Paralympic trials in um, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin, and finishing second at the trials, which was I need top two go. And I was just so, so grateful and so lucky. Uh, it took a lot of, like, even my doctor came to the race because I was in such rough shape and we were, we were worried about me even being able to run at all. So um, I knew exactly what I needed to do to qualify. It was it was pretty pretty scary, but so since then, um, I got to go to Tokyo. I got to represent the United States. It was not how I imagined it. You know, a year prior, I was in the best shape of my life. I'm running a 20 minute 5k off the bike. I go from running a 20 minute 5k to running a 28 minute 5k. You know, and struggling. So it was really really. Um, tough mentally. I ended up uh, with some disordered eating during that time because I was trying to starve myself to figure out why this weight gain was happening. They they knew it was medication related. They knew it was inflammatory related. But you know, I was just convinced that if I train harder and eat less, that um, that, that was going to be the fix. And it obviously wasn't. I put myself into red S, which for those of you who don't know what that is, it's 
um, basically a, a chronic overtraining and underfueling. And so ended up with osteoporosis, ended up with heart issues, um, you know, uh, metabolism issues, blood sugar issues. It was, it was a really rough time. And so after Tokyo, I realized, you know, what's the insanity, what's the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And I knew that, um, I wasn't happy with how I finished in Tokyo. I wasn't happy with how my body looked. I didn't, it didn't, I didn't feel like the athlete that I had been for so many years, you know, working eight years for this one day race, um, of my life. And, um, you know, yes, I was proud to be there and proud to represent my country, but it wasn't how I imagined my uh, Olympic or Paralympic experience to be. So I wanted to do over and I thought, okay, well, I can't run at the, at, against 20 year olds right now. You know, I'm 47 years old. Like my body is telling me like, this is clearly not working out. And I, like, I'm going to be chronically injured if I try to run a 20 minute 5k, it's just not going to happen. So what am I good at? You know, and that's, that's, been a common theme all along, like, what can I do? What can I do? If I can't do this, like, what is my body capable of doing right now? I was routinely the fastest cyclist in in my sport uh, for the for the women's blind category on the tandem. I had an amazing tandem pilot. I thought, well, I love to ride my bike. I love to ride my bike. I live to ride my bike. I was like, well, cycling. And and I knew watts per kilo, like, was not going to be in my favor. Like, definitely not climbing, like, in the in the Italian Alps with my body composition as it was. I mean, it's like, you know, it's physics. I mean, like, we can all talk about body positivity, but at the end of the day, you know, you've got physics working against you. So um, I was like, well, the track. Like, there, there's a velodrome right here in San Diego. Um, the fastest female cyclist in the world, Denise Mueller, she set the world record uh, on the Bonneville Salt Flats for doing 183 miles per hour uh, behind a drag racer um, three years ago. And she happens to be a kick-ass tandem pilot, and she used to race on the track. I thought, well, the stars are aligning. This is this is my path. And so I've been track cycling since then. I just won my third national title last Thursday. Um, in the in the pursuit, in the three kilometer pursuit. So my goal is to try to make the team for Paris uh, in track cycling because again, my body composition, you know, as a sprinter, doesn't matter as much. It's like it's about power. It's, it's just raw power and speed. And um, sure, the first five pedal strokes aren't super fun, having an extra forty pounds in your body. But once the bike gets going, it, it's it's a flat surface, so it doesn't really matter. At that point, it's just all about strength. So it's a totally different way of training than anything I'm used to for endurance sports. I, you know, now I'm a sprinter, whereas I'm spending all this time doing deadlifts and squatting like big weight and and living in the gym, you know, four or five days a week and on the track and doing these standing starts, you know, in, in this massive gear. I'm running like a 60 in the front and, you know, 13 in the back. It's, it's, it's you know, these massive, massive gears that you just, your head explodes with with how much power you have to put down. But it's super, super fun. And it's and I get to go fast on my bike. So I've just, you know, found a different way to skin the cat. And then um, I'm coaching a number of visually impaired athletes I um, in triathlon. So I'm actually headed to a World Cup tomorrow up in Long Beach. I've got a great young girl named Taylor Talbot, who's actually a track and field sprinter who's visually impaired, who's making the move over to triathlon. So I run a camp called Camp No Sight, No Limits, and I've had about 30 blind athletes come through my camp and and 30 guides. And so they're all competing internationally now. I'm super proud of everybody. Um, so, so it's a high-performance camp because when I got in the sport, 
it was like, oh, yay, all the blind athletes are racing. Go, guys, go. And it was like a very low bar and a very low expectation of what was possible. And these guys are running like, you know, 16 and 17 minute 5Ks. Like these guys are fast, fast guys. And, um, you know, they're putting down, you know, uh, you know, five watts per kilo for a, for a 20K. So, I mean, so the, it's a serious sport and it needs to be taken. It needs to be taken seriously. And these as- athletes need to be taken seriously. And I've had the benefit of experience and and uh, kind of being in the early stages of, you know, when when we were involved in, in visually impaired triathlon. Now it's, you know, even the transitions, you know, you're talking about, you know, one second counts, whether you know where your helmet is and muscle memory and things like that. Knowing when if somebody's totally blind, having their sunglasses already in their helmet opened up like all these little details that we can work on to make these blind athletes really, really competitive against uh, the Europeans that have a lot more funding than than, um, than the U.S. does. So it's that's been a lot of fun. And, and um, I have a new day job. I'm working for a company called I See Better uh, as a director of patient advocacy. So I'm involved with uh, the Glaucoma Foundation and the Glaucoma Research Foundation. And I do a lot of speaking at different pharma companies about my disease and how uh, technology has enabled me to travel around the world as, a, as somebody who's battling a very difficult condition and manage my disease while competing at a very high level. So it's been a, it's been a really interesting and whirlwind kind of journey. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I, it's almost hard to keep up with. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm also a, a recovery pulmonary embolism guy. About Oops. 18 months ago, it, it hit me. Um, but luckily, we caught it in time. How did, um, how did yours manifest out of curiosity? Yeah, I was short of breath um, for a couple of days. I thought it was Omicron and you know, I'd walk up a flight of stairs and have to lay down just exhausted. And I saw a, a doctor, a friend who is also a doctor. And he's like, Greg, let's just start working off the big things. Let's go get you a scan. And they did the Doppler on the legs and they found blood clotting all down the left extremity. And next thing you know, they did the circular CT and it was all over the long, it was saddles, so it was on both sides. And I just thought I was going around for the ride. Like I was walking and joking with the people in the ambulance. And yeah. next thing you know, it's, you know, it's go time. And they almost cut out, cut me open to remove it. Are you on a, are you, so are you like me, like on a lifetime of blood thinners? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Same. Yeah. I had like, I have to go off with them the day before I race because if I crash, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, pretty devastating. So I was laughing because, um, you know, the, the, uh, pulmonologist and the, um, hematologist, the blood doctor is like, oh, you know, just don't do any dangerous or high speed sports. And I said, I ride bikes for a living at like 35 miles an hour. Is that, is that bad? <laughs> said, yeah, that counts. I said, oh, okay, well, I'll just be really careful. Just don't fall over. Just don't fall over. Just don't crash. And I have to ask, where does this drive come from? I mean, with the, the struggles through your life and, and what you're dealing with, like you're achieving these amazing things and it's got to be rooted in in some sort of, where does that drive come from? Um, I just realized that there's really no limit on anything you can do. I've, I've really had the privilege of meeting so many extremely successful people that are dealing with vision loss or limb loss or paralysis and and uh, that are federal court judges that are climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And I feel like a slacker compared to some of these people. I'm like, gosh, I need to get my act together. <laughs> so I really, you know, I mean, not to make light of my journey, it's like it's, you know, having 39 surgeries has not been a picnic and ending up in the ICU a couple of times in the past year, certainly not uh, what I would choose to do or 
taking weekly chemotherapy at this point in my life. It's not, you know, that made for a really tough pandemic because I had to really isolate because, uh, you know, I was immunocompromised. And um, so there was, you know, some pretty dark times in there. Um, you know, I was dealing with depression, suicidal ideation, you know, um, eating disorder during during that time, uh, right after right after Tokyo. But I think the the things that have gotten me out of it is like, I look at all the things that I can do and focusing on what I can do. And, um, and again, how privileged I am to be able to do this and be in a position where I've got a beautiful bike. I have a, a, a apartment right next to the second largest YMCA in the country. I've got an amazing uh, crew of men and women that I can go out on my bike with. Like I'm not stuck on riding a trainer all the time, even though I actually really like riding the trainer. Um, we've got things like Zwift where I can, when I'm on the trainer, my best friend is on the British uh, triathlon team. And my other good friend is is the number one blind athlete in the world. And she's on the Spanish team. We can all hook up on Zwift and, you know, and, and discord and chat and we can race each other. We can, you know, give, you know, like, uh, catch up while spinning on the bike. And so like all these things, I'm living in such a great time in history for technology to enable me to live a really full life as someone who's visually impaired. Um, you know, I can get everywhere I need to go in Uber. Um, where when I was first uh, dealing with not driving, it was really, really hard to get around. So every week and month, there's more technology that's allowing me to do all the things that I did before. And Honestly, the one thing that I can't do is drive a car, but I think, you know, Tesla's working on fixing that. So, um, yeah, I, I think the, the drive comes from, I feel like, you know, uh, what is, what is the, uh, the, the quote, like giving anything less than your best is, is uh, squandering the gift kind of thing. And I, I think that that's, that's where I feel, you know, really um, compelled and, like it's a requirement that I get to, that I do as much as I can with what I have. Like, I, I feel like I, sh I should be doing, I always feel like I should be doing more. Like I should be helping more patients. I should be help coaching more athletes. I should be performing at a higher level. I, I just, I want more. I want, I want to be faster. I want to help more people, I, you know, all those things. It's, it's that constant like self-improvement and going, how can I get 1% better today? How can I help more people? Like, how do I create a million Amy Dixon patient advocates in the country. How do I how do I set that up? And um, I think that's what keeps me going every day is knowing like, gosh, this is all this is possible, and all it takes is a little bit of hard work. And it's obviously as a professional athlete, it's not something I'm afraid of. Powerful, very very powerful. Amy, how can people follow you? Like, what's your social media handles? Um, we love to I, keep keep I'm on, on you Twitter. Although journey. Twitter sounds like it's going away. Um, <laughs> and, uh, no site, no limits. And, uh, and also on Instagram, I post more on Instagram and I cross post to fa Facebook, um, also at no site, no limits. And then, um, Amy, uh, Amy Dixon, USA.com is my website. Um, yeah. So I've got, you know, some exciting things in the pipeline and starting this, um, launching a patient, uh, advocacy program for, for people with low vision and uh, yeah, I'll be working with these these a couple really amazing young blind athletes heading into Paris uh, in triathlon, keeping my hands in there. It's I'm having fun. It's I have so much FOMO. I miss it so much. But I'm like, gosh, like I you know, I wish I had those kind of. I was lucky to have some really good mentors, but I wish I knew you know in the beginning and or had access to the equipment that I have now. So 
being able to pay that forward is such a gift um, to be able to do it for for the next generation. It's it's really fun to see these twenty year olds, you know, coming up and it, threw her out in the ocean and she would just swam out to the first buoy by herself. I was like, Jesus, you're brave. You know, like I don't, I'm like I don't like sharks. I'm like, what are you doing? Um, it's just really, really fun. It's rewarding working with kids. And uh, yeah, I, I just, I love it. I absolutely love it. And the track is super fun. If you like to ride your bike fast, I think that every triathlete should have the opportunity to do it. If you haven't been on a velodrome or you have a local bike track, hop on it. Like, I think you'll be hooked. All right. I'll, I'll check that out for sure. Um, and I, you're absolutely leaving a legacy. Right? Like It's the work that you're doing now and the impact you're having on people's lives is going to be waves and waves and waves and generations and generations. So thank you for that. My um, advice to everybody, basically, if I were to leave somebody with a, a thought today is like surround yourself with really great training partners. And um, like that is like you will never be fast or good training alone. Like, I mean, whether that's running a master swim group, a run group, a cycling group. Um, just because of the support network, you never know, like you're never going to get that last percent unless somebody's in the next lane over and you're pushing yourself or same thing when you're doing intervals on the bike. Obviously, you know, it's a very solitary sport. So you tend to get in your own head and it's great. You never know when you're at a race and something breaks and you need to borrow a derailleur or, you know, borrow a helmet or you forgot your socks. So, um, you know, use your network. The, the, the triathlon community is such a great community and um, it's, it's such a, a wonderful endurance sport of like camaraderie, even when people are competitors. I've never seen anything like it. And so I think, you know, make sure you surround yourself with good people and you'll be successful. That's great advice. Um, and to our audience members, many of these, these links will be below in the show notes. We ask that uh, if you got some value out of our show today, that you share it with the commu your community, with your friends, with your family. You know, I think what the work that Amy's doing and her story in specifically has a lot of inspiration. It's got me fired up. And, you know, I loved it, Amy, when you said, what can I do? What 1% can I do better today? And and focusing on just little incremental improvements and how that improves us over the long term. But thank you, Amy. It was great connecting with you. I could talk with you for hours. Yes. <laughs> um, but good luck in World Cup with your triathletes next week. Um, I'll, I'll be watching. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was so great chatting. Thank you for tuning in to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. To hear more inspiring stories and strategies around the endurance mindset, be sure to subscribe below or visit us at chiefenduranceofficer.com. Until next time, keep pushing those limits.